Welcome to the Nativity Good News Podcast. I'm Michael Sanum. I'm Connor Kramichek. And we're highlighting how Nativity parishioners are answering the gospel call to serve, to love, and to evangelize. Today we're highlighting the ministry of Dr. Dan Tal, longtime Nativity parishioner, and the foundation he started called the Tiny Lives Foundation, which helps children affected by the HIV-AIDS virus in Lesotho, a small landlocked country in South Africa. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast today. We're here with uh, Dr. Dan Tao, Nativity Parishioner, uh, to discuss his ministry, the Tiny Lives Foundation that he's been involved in, and a founding member as well. Um, so my name is Michael Sena. I'm a minister of evangelization here. I'm Connor Kamichek. I'm the Director of Communication. And welcome, Dan. Thanks very much. Great to be here. And we're really glad to have you here. Um, as I was just researching this, I was, uh, I was really amazed at the impact that this foundation has made. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about how the ministry got started and how you were involved in that? The Tiny Lights Foundation is really kind of a great story of providence. Um, because I can go all the way back to the very moment that um, I became aware of the inspiration to become involved. Uh, I was a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, and there is a quarterly literary magazine that comes out. And I can still remember where I was sitting in our home as I was reading an article that just had a little side blurb about an alumnus by the name of Ken Storen, who had been a Peace Corps volunteer in the small little country of Lesotho, it's a country completely ringed by the country of South Africa. And he was writing about the fact that he had stayed on and he was beginning to take children that had been orphaned or infected themselves with the AIDS HIV virus into his home. And it was just a small little blurb about his involvement. And at that time, you know, I was inspired to think I need to get in touch with this man and see how I can be of assistance. So after some legwork running back to the university alumni database, I was able to get a message over to um, Lesotho, to Ken, expressing that I wanted to be able to help in some fashion. Um, in hindsight, he had gotten these letters a lot and became somewhat uh, skeptical of them. And so basically just sort of challenged me that if you want to become involved, why don't you come on over first? Um, wow. <laughs> so uh, being married to my lovely wife, Christy, who is used to the, some international medical efforts in the past, um, she said, sure, go ahead. Wow. So at the time, I took our oldest son, Brian, who um, I believe had just graduated with about a year previous to that from here at Nativity, as our other three children had, and we headed over to Lesotho. Um, finding our way into the country was um, a real challenge. It's basically just a little teeny country of mountains in the middle of South Africa where historically people who were being captured for the slave trade fled into the mountains to hide because it was much more difficult to be discovered there. And over time, that population, because of their unique cultures, became their own country. So we um, headed to Lesotho, and upon arrival, went to the city of Maholong, where Ken had his home. So that was my first moment or introduction to Touching Tiny Lives. 
for our listeners who might not know about Tiny Labs Foundation, would just tell a little more about uh, what it does and how it serves the people that it serves? The main mission of, of Tiny Lives is to support children who are either infected or impacted by the HIV AIDS virus. So fortunately, um, we um, were able to establish very early on an association uh, with the Baylor University. They had set up a special clinic down in the capital city, and um, uh, my kids and I went and sweet-talked the director, and next thing you know, they were sending somebody up to work at the Touching Tiny Lives house. So that per, that physician was providing direct medical support. We literally had children that were born premature, and uh, you know I think the record was like two pounds, and had those children live through the care there. So they, to, to help the kids that are infected, but even more so, there's even a multiple of that of kids who have lost their parents. And so through the community outreach program, we have three cars basically every day that are going out to this incredibly mountainous uh, environment with mud huts, literally, uh, where grandpa- grandparents have taken their orphans back in because perhaps their, their daughter died uh, because of the virus. And we're taking them grain to plant. We're taking them food to eat, um, money to be able to send the kiddo to school clothing, etc. So the outreach program is literally impacting thousands, keeping them alive and growing up into um, productive young citizens. Um, you know, we're making sure that the, the girls especially get to or have an access to schooling uh, because of the cultural constraints there. And, and so having that long-term impact, we've started programs of uh, supporting women opening up their own small businesses so that they can help keep their kid their kiddos at home if they can so it's basically an outreach program for the children and every member of their family wow so you journey with your son to this remote part this remote country within south africa that's sort of enclaved by south africa um was your just i'm just thinking this initial read of this article uh, or this little sidebar in the literary magazine, you know, what, um, was it, was it a sudden, what was that experience like? Was it, was it kind of, did you get a nudge? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it, I mean, what in you do you think just, you, you talked about Providence, but can you kind of it absolutely, it absolutely was the Holy Spirit at work. It was, it was a providential nudge because I had read a lot of things like that through the magazine and elsewhere. But there was something about his mission that I was felt I was somehow being called to help, um, and so I, I reached out to him. Um, we, when we got to his his home, he when I knocked at the door, he was actually shocked that we were standing there. <laughs> um, he knew we were supposedly coming, but never believed that it would be true. And so walking into his home where he at the time was just maybe, you know, a 600 square foot house, little teeny thing with three little bedrooms. Um, he had 10 infants living with him at the time that he had taken in. And one of the children was literally on death's door. And from that moment on, you know, I knew that we had been called to add to it in some fashion. So I was able to, we were there for a couple of weeks. I was able to help out with the health care of the kids. Uh, Brian constructed uh, with some spare lumber, some bed, bunk beds um, for the kids to, to have a place to sleep. 
And as I was leaving, I told Ken that I'm going to go back to the United States and raise $100,000 for you. And he looked at me and he laughed. And he said, you have no idea how many times I've been told that and it's never happened. Um, so I'm prone to accepting challenges. Um, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and uh, felt that this would be a good one. So uh, coming back, realizing that contributions to an effort like this really are um, encouraged if it's, a, if quite honestly, if there's a tax donation aspect to it. So I spent the next month filling out what I recall to be about a 28-page application to, to form a 501c3, a charitable foundation. Um, getting all that done and sending it in, I, I'm compulsive with follow-up, so I called the IRS about a week later just to say, hey, did you get the application? And the woman um, that answered the phone started looking through it, and, she, and all I heard was her voice saying, oh my gosh, this has never, ever happened before. I'm like, oh, goodness, you know, what's gone wrong You don't now? want to hear that from the IRS. No, no. <laughs> that's, that's not what you want to hear from those folks. Um, and she said, I've never seen this in my entire career, but your application has already been approved. She said, this normally takes somewhere between six and nine months. And, you know, so that moment reaffirmed in me that um, something providential was going on. Yeah. And so uh, we were off to the races at that point. Um, I should step back and say, you know, what was it really Ken was trying to do with these kids living in his house? Um, Lesotho is a very poor country where the men basically have to go across the border uh, to South Africa to work in the mines or the trucking industry for a living. And unfortunately, because of that lifestyle, there's a large exposure within the men to prostitution. And at the time, the HIV AIDS virus was running rampant in Africa. And so the, they were becoming infected, they were coming back, and their spouses were becoming infected. And at the time that we became involved, 24% of all children in Lesotho were HIV positive. And there were over 100,000 children orphaned by the virus. And this is in a very, very small country. So that was the crisis, that there were so many children with AIDS or orphan, which is in their case is just about as bad because unless you develop a structure to take care of these kids, they're going to die themselves from malnutrition, associated diseases, et cetera. So that was the goal to somehow step in and make a difference in that arena. Um, so um, once the foundation was formed, I obviously needed more than me to make things <laughs> successful. Um, so um, set about uh, talking to my kids who at the, at the time we had two of them at the University of Notre Dame and then um, um, Brian entering at the getting ready to enter St. Thomas Aquinas as well as Kevin here at Nativity and they all wanted to become involved and so the older daughters helped me form a foundation with some of their classmates at Notre Dame a particular spring break uh, I think we had four very, very talented young kids fly into Leewood, you know, just a couple blocks away from the church here. Out on our screened-in porch, we formed the foundation that would become the, the root of all of this. And so that became the, the launching board for all of the, uh, the collections that we did. Uh, meanwhile, um, uh, locally, um, I, there were a number of parishioners that became involved in the donations and the knowledge base of it. Um, and several of the graduates of the school here who went on to Aquinas, who were also on the cross-country team with our kids, 
uh, eventually over the next few years developed what was known as the thousand mile relay, which after the cross country season, they would get together and do a relay of all of them running all at the same time. And, and basically they set the record for the highest donated event at Aquinas's history. They raised $37,000 one fall. Wow. Um, so that was an example of the outreach. That's incredible. Let's back up here just a moment. Can you tell me just like your own training, what, what you do for a living and how that sort of connected to this, your, your vocation in life and, and connected to this? Um, I'm a physician. My specialty at the time was pediatric anesthesia. So um, Christy had been very, very supportive over the years for me to go on international surgical trips. Um, Brazil, Peru, Honduras, uh, Nepal, etc. So the international part of it uh, dated back to being an anthropology major in college, <laughs> and um, and so that was my interest in in medicine. Okay. So was was there a sense of like fit between this great need you saw in Lesotho and your kind of own gifts and talents? I always felt that. Um, it, you used a great word there, gifts. You know, I, uh, talents are something that are given, that are developed, mm-hmm. but it all comes back to blessings. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that the blessing the, and the gifts that I received that allowed me to get through medical school were just that. They were given to me, and I had some need, some obligation, some desire to pay it back somehow. So that's where the international medical arenas started um, yeah. coming in. So the sense of receiving gifts, these blessings, kind of that overflowing and wanting to share that with others, sort of. Exactly, yeah. How can I take it back? And, and granted, there's needy in our own community and just, you know, you know, a mile away from our house, et cetera. But I was perhaps just because of the, my exposure, I was drawn to the international arena. So that's where I've done most of the, where most of my calling has been. Yeah. Yeah, it also strikes me how much of a family vocation this is. I mean, what a beautiful witness to marriage and family that that your kid, your wife's encouraging you, your kids are getting involved, they're getting their classmates involved. I mean, what a beautiful community you formed around this ministry. Um, yeah, that's true. I was I was you know blessed with the family too that would do it. But you know, we live in a very privileged environment here in Leewood, and and. It's important that the, that all of us, including my own kids, understood the big world out there. And every one of them went on one or two international medical trips. Uh, not only did it make for some great stories and great memories, but it opened their eyes to the broader world around them. Yeah, yeah that can be so important uh, growing up. That's great. Where, where do you see sort of... Um, God at work in this ministry? So how's kind of your faith been involved, but then also kind of how has the ministry maybe impacted your faith uh, over the last couple decades? The, the greatest impact it probably has been making me this fervent believer in divine providence, um, because things, if you're open to it, the calling of the Spirit, etc., you're open to it, it, it happens for a reason. Uh, it's not just you doing something, it's the Spirit putting people in front of you that's going to make it happen. Um, as a small example of that, I was privileged in college to, to go overseas, and the, the university president, Father Hesburgh, uh, personally wrote a check so that I could go. So uh, as we're developing this foundation, I thought, well, heck, he supported me a long time ago uh, in college with some money. Maybe I should get in touch with him. 
So I called up and stumbled through my little introduction to this internationally known amazing um, president, now retired of the university. And the amazing thing is, this is how I know God's involved in this. I get through my stumbling introduction to a secretary, and the words out of her mouth were the exact same words that his secretary in 1976 used when I called up to ask for money. <laughs> and the words were, well, I'm not sure, Dan. He's right here. I'm going to put him on the phone. So the next thing you know, Father Hesburgh has become the, uh, the honorary chair of our foundation. And it didn't stop there. This is how, you know, the, my strong belief in providence goes. Yeah. Years later, he had a, a somewhat known football coach sitting in his office by the name of Lou Holtz. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. And Lou uh, had a great relationship with Father Hesburgh. And, and he's, he said to Father, what can I do? Tell me something I can do to help the university. This was actually after um, Lou had resigned as coach. And Father gave him information on, t- on Tiny Lives and said, write them a check and write them a check every time you come back to campus. And sure enough, we got a very large donation from Coach Holtz. And for the next two or three years, we got that money. Then one year I was back for a football game and it was at the bookstore where there was a book signing event with Coach Holtz and I um, gave him a copy of my book and I, I just introduced myself with uh, Touching Tiny Lives and quickly said, thank you for your amazing support. And he whacked himself on the head and he goes, I haven't written a check yet. <laughs> and next thing you know, we've got another check from Lou Holtz. So you know, back to your initial question, that's probably the biggest impact that it's had on me is believing that if there's something that's supposed to happen, you'll be given the talents to help make it happen, and you'll be given the people in to put in front of you uh, if you recognize their skills to make it happen as yeah. well. Tell me a little bit just about uh, the obstacles you encountered. I mean, you've, you've got this great witness of, of God's providence and the Holy Spirit at work, but uh, did it all go as smoothly as it sounds, you know, kind of in retrospect or not at all. Um, like, you know, some little minor things for, for a starter. Um, one year when I was taking a a trip back where three of our children were on the trip, we, uh, decided we were going to take back a ship with us, a swing set, uh, and a bouncy house that we had purchased here. And so I actually got those on a freight delivery system, picked them up when we landed in, in uh, South Africa and we headed across the border into Lesotho where we were promptly stopped by the border crossing and they wanted to confiscate that material. And we had to end up going down to the, to the main border crossing and eventually paying, I, I believe it was a $750 bribe to a gentleman <laughs> in a, in a big, big fur coat known, that came to be known by our kids as Big Papa. Um, so that, that, it turned into a humorous event, but the reality of it is is that corruption and bribes do play a large uh, role in how medical care is dispersed there. Um, so that became a, a big disadvantage. Also, even within the city of Maholtlong, which again only had maybe a population of two or three thousand, um, there was resistance to helping their own. Um, so you couldn't count on culturally getting support, even in the same city where you were trying to do it. Uh, so the sad thing is, when uh, when I was visiting Ken the first time, he had been trying 
for years to purchase a parcel of land in the city that he sort of envisioned some sort of um, safe home or um, not that we don't want to use the word orphanage and I can come back to that in a bit, but he had had no luck. And he said, come on, the city council is actually meeting tomorrow night. You're going to go and you're going to be my big investor from the white world, which is a very sad commentary, but it was very true because I stood up and made some bombastic pledge about, you know, how we were going to build this house and it's going to impact the environment and, 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 the, and the culture. And after years of resisting him, uh, unanimous vote that night to sell Ken the land. Um, so we ran against prejudice as well. Uh, we ran against uh, logistics. You know, how do we get very simple things like um, – the HIV test kits, quick test kits were first coming out. But, you know, we ran into the logistics culturally of nobody wanted to be seen, none of the women wanted to be seen coming to the hospital to have an HIV test done because then you were castigated. You were labeled as automatically HIV positive. Um, So we had to work within that. If you can't identify who's HIV, then how can you help them? And we were able to get literally the first portable swab testing kits for HIV in the entire country. We were able to get a donation here within the U.S. and to take them into the country. So from cultural perspectives, logistic perspectives, financial perspectives, there were a lot of challenges. When you feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit, like you said, you felt a lot, is it, is it still difficult to kind of follow that nudge and how do you find the the strength and the courage to follow that even if it's something that might make you uncomfortable? Well, perhaps as specifically as it relates to tiny lives, that nudge took on several forms and um, the nudge initially was for me to form the foundation and get it rolling. And for the first uh, 10 years, I was instrumental as far as being involved in it, being the the chair of it, et cetera, and getting it going. But then I kind of felt a nudge that it was time to get out of the way. Uh, Time to, you know, it's the old story of, you know, if if you want to, you know, truly help somebody, teach them how to fish. Um, And so it was sort of swallowing my my desire to, I liked being a leader. I liked being involved, swallowing that and getting out of the way and turning it over to the next generation uh, because we had had uh, a program set up where college students came and rotated through um, either graduates for six months or some of them for two years, et cetera. So it came time to get out of the way and let the new generation run things the way they saw fit. So, you know, it, that's kind of the, the, the nudge comes from, you know, affirming directions and it comes from humbling directions yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. You've been re- so responsive to both, but, um, how, uh, what would you say to somebody that maybe, maybe they're out there, maybe they, they feel like they've got a lot of time or gifts or talents to give and they're kind of looking for a ministry to get involved in. Maybe it's this one, maybe it's something else. What, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? Um, first of all, you have to recognize where there's a need and the, you have to not recognize where you think there's a need. Mm. You have to have the old story of go in first with your eyes and your ears and 
feel where there's the need. Listen to everybody around you tell you that we need this to do. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, charitable things, nonprofit things that have fallen apart because people felt they decided what was needed. They decided how it was going to get done. And they went in and tried to impose their perspective on things. So the biggest advice I would give somebody is sit back and listen to those that are there. Listen to the pulse of what's going on and try to uh, tailor your response to be a part of that. Um, you know, for instance, you know, I, you know, I could have, you know, after retirement gone over and said, I, I'm going to go back over there and run things. Well, that's not the right answer. Um, the way the right answer is, you know, we have a safe home now that employs currently 16 local women. It's all run locally. No you know, Westerner is involved in it, which is the way it ought to be. Yeah. Because you, you step out of the way and you let them do things. So, you know, follow whatever you think you're being called to do. Listen to it, but realize that you're just being used in a spiritual sense. Um, and so um, don't try to do what you think needs to be done. Do what you think you're hearing needs to be done. Yeah, so identify the need. Mm -hmm. So there's this wonderful mix in your, in your story here of, um, I just struck me, of faith and reason, theology and science with this, this mix, but also kind of um, an, an intellectual, uh, spiritual humility as well in, um, you know, actually listening to what the data says about what the needs are, what people are saying versus imposing something that might fail. But I just wondered if you could speak, because I know in evangelization ministry, I encounter this, especially amongst like younger people, that they see very much like faith and science are, you know, at odds with each other or theology and science or faith and reason. But your life, your ministry here with with the Tiny Lives Foundation, to me, there's this beautiful overlap of of faith and reason working together, like they they're supposed to in the Catholic faith. Um, so I don't know if you could speak to that at all in your own your own experience. I think they go together if you let them work together. Um, you, you speak of the science, you know, the medical skills, etc., the ability to go out and and fundraise, etc. Those are all skill sets, um, but it all comes down to, in your heart, do you believe in what you're doing? Um, does it grab you with what you're doing? I, it, perhaps in reference to, to your thoughts, I mean, you could go out to those who wanted to donate, and you could give them all the facts in the world about what you're doing. You could share with them, you know, we've, we've worked with 2,900 children at this point. Um, it's just an amazing ministry. You can give them all the numbers they want, but that's not what's going to make it successful. That's not what's going to um, lead to the next child being the, What you have to do is establish an emotional bond between that donor and what they're doing. So they have to feel that they've been called to help these children, that they're listening to a higher calling. They're not just responding to, you know, scientific numbers and this has been justified and this is our strategic plan, et cetera. So yeah, it's, if you're, as, as I've been involved in that, it's been, it was important for me to understand that 
people need to see both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the motto of the organization, which is one child at a time. Is that correct? That is. Yeah. 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 Very much a ministry of encountering the person in front of you, the, the inherent dignity of each and every person, and sort of working within cultures and, and places to, to make sure that that stays your focus versus strictly on the numbers, strictly on everything else, but that, that one child at a time. That's very beautiful, very beautiful. Did you have anything else you wanted to add about this ministry or how people could get involved? Um, well, you know, the, here at Nativity, you know, the Parish Outreach Committee, uh, which um, perhaps not all parishioners are aware of it, but it's a very talented um, group of about six or seven parishioners that over the years have accepted applications from various nonprofit, various charitable um, um, belongings within the city and, and those that have um, parishioner involvement. Um, it's support from that parish outreach to Tiny Lives. It's been absolutely instrumental. Uh, I believe the, the, the parish and all parishioners by, by association have donated already and supported uh, Touching Tiny Lives for about um, eight years. And so though you know, we may speak figuratively of a parishioners getting involved, uh, the reality is they already are involved. Uh, they already have given of their treasure. Um, to this this ministry, and so as I speak about you know the twenty nine hundred kids and the, everything that we've done, and literally the thousands and thousands of orphans that we've replaced back in their uh, extended families, grandparents, giving them uh, educational support, giving them uh, medical support back in their villages, uh, you know, helping the grandparents who can no longer work financially. Every single one of those kids uh, who's out there now was, to a degree, helped by every parishioner here at Nativity. And that's what makes it pretty amazing. The, the, the sad thing is we can't you know, put a face or a name in front of every single parishioner, but trust me, uh, those kids are out there. And I, I know it can be trite at times to say that you know, somebody is alive today um, because of our efforts, but it, it's the honest to goodness truth. There are literally children in Lesotho who are alive today um, because of the support of Nativity Parish. Um, so it, it's a pretty amazing thing that uh, we're actually all involved. Yeah, that's incredible from Leewood to Lesotho, <laughs> a connection, right? Yeah, that's exactly. amazing. Exactly. Well, there's actually been a, a, numerous connections. Um, Natabaline, the woman who actually started off as a, uh, the house cleaner at Ken's house, uh, eventually over time she became the, the grandmother, if you will, of the entire safe home. Uh, the safe home is a large campus now uh, with a big house for the kids and a big, uh, I think, seven or eight quarters for people who come to work and um, assist there. Um, um, She actually came back to um, the United States, um, I believe around 2008, and spoke here at Nativity. 
Really? I've got uh, I've got a great photo of her standing in church uh, after mass one time uh, next to Mr. Bill Powers. Okay. Uh, they, uh, they, and uh, as as you all know, Bill is I I don't know I'm guessing maybe six ten, and Nate Tobolin is about four foot ten. Uh, so it's a fabulous photo, but uh, that's that's one of the links. And then she came over here and, to the school. And spoke to a number of the classes. So, you know, back then there are kids that went, that graduated from Nativity and went out, um, or perhaps went back home and talked to their parents that night about Tiny Lives. Wow. Well, I am like completely inspired right now by this story and just your your openness to the Holy Spirit and just wow. I mean, it's. I think I said wow. <laughs> Like 30 times, but I couldn't, you know, wow, my goodness, my gosh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful for your witness and uh, your generosity of spirit in answering the call. And um, yeah, th- Thank you, Carly, but I'll, I'll cycle it all back to divine providence, so I'm just thankful for the providential calling that got so many people uh, doing such amazing work. Mm-hmm. Amen. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Well, thank you, Dan. This has been a wonderful conversation and look forward to seeing you around Nativity. I appreciate the opportunity, especially to share with all of the parishioners the work that they have been doing. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. You bet. Do you or someone you know have some good news to share with our Nativity community? Email us at communication at kcnativity.org. 